Welcome to this season of the Unfinished Business Podcast. Over the next few weeks and months, I'll be discussing art directing for the web with my guests, who are some of the most experienced art directors and designers working on the web today. I'm your host, Andy Clark, and I'm writing a hard-boiled web design book about art directing for the web. And you can find out more about that at stuffandnonsense.co.uk slash books. Now, this season of Unfinished Business is proudly sponsored by Coffee Cup Software, and in particular, their new CSS Grid Builder. If you're the type of designer or developer that likes tools to do their dirty work for them, CSS Grid Builder might just be the thing for you. Now, you might have used what you see is what you get editors before, so you're probably remembering just how lousy the code they spat out was. But let me stop you there. CSS Grid Builder outputs excellent code. Browsers developer tools are getting better at inspecting grids, but CSS Grid Builder helps you build them, obviously. At its core, CSS Grid Builder is a Chromium-based browser that's wrapped in a user interface, so it runs on Mac OS and Windows. This means that if the browser can render it, CSS Grid Builder can write it. In fact, CSS Grid Builder builds more than just grids, and you can use it to create styles for backgrounds, including gradients, which is really handy, borders, typography. It even handles Flexbox and multi-column layouts. But designing a grid is the app's biggest draw, because when you're new to CSS Grid, visualizing how its columns and rows combine to form a layout can be one of the hardest parts of learning how it works. You create a grid, use sliders to preview the results at various breakpoints, and if you're one of those people who's worried about other people using incapable browsers, CSS Grid Builder also offers settings where you can configure fallbacks. Then just copy and paste CSS styles into somewhere else in your project, or you can export the whole kit and caboodle. Best of all, CSS Grid Builder is currently free. Yes, you heard that right. It's free while Coffee Cup Software develop it. And if you like what they're doing, you can throw the few dollars their way to help fund its development. You can find out more and download CSS Grid Builder at cssgrid.cc. On with the show. Now, you see, this is the part of the podcast where you and me, Rob Wickett, we pretend to the six people that are listening that we haven't been chatting for like the last 15 minutes. We have to make it sound, right? We have to make it sound as if we're just meeting for the first time. Maybe oh. even across a crowded room. Is that you, Andy Clark? That sounds a bit weird, actually. <laughs> it does. Our, 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 sorry, I can't even get my words out. Our eyes met across the crowded room. And there, there was this moment, this spark of recognition. <laughs> no, it's, it's not going to work, is it? It's, people are I, not going to fall for this. I, def I defer to you, podcast master, no. Andy Clark. No, well, you see, actually, the audience is a bit stupid, so they could, they could have fallen for that, but they probably didn't. Anyway, I'm really glad that you could spend an hour with me talking about what I think is going to be a really interesting conversation about art direction. And I was, uh, I've been recording this series of podcasts over the last few weeks, and one of the people that I spoke to 
on this subject of art direction was somebody that, uh, well, apparently you've met him a few times. You came up in conversation, you and your alter ego, when we recorded a show a, f- a few weeks ago, which was David Slate. I think uh, you know David. I'm, I'm vaguely familiar with David Slate. He seems like a weird guy. A weird guy? Why would you say that? Yeah. Well, no. I mean, he, he just sounded like he, uh, he hadn't put his teeth in before the podcast. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, David, if you're listening. You sounded very eloquent. But no, your name, did, your name came up in conversation quite a few times when we were talking about ProPublica. We kept referencing you. And I just thought, bloody hell, I'd rather hear it from the horse's mouth. And we haven't, I don't think, I've, I think the last time I saw you was in Chicago about it must have been about eight years ago yeah or maybe 10 (laughs) yeah it's been a while i don't like to think of it being that long oh well well let's just let's say it was you know a year ago that makes me happy yeah we're just catching up from about a year ago so for those people that don't know you as well as i do (laughs) he says not having seen you for 10 years (laughs) You you're, you're currently working with uh, with David Slate at, uh, at ProPublica. That's right. And what is it that you do there? What do they What do they call you these days? So my official title is editorial experience designer. Um, Ooh. Yeah, which sounds maybe a little made up, but actually I think it's pretty descriptive about what I do because on the editorial side of things, it's got to do with, you know, storytelling and and doing design that is in service to storytelling and and can be very specific and intentional about it. And then the experience designer part is user experience. It's dealing with, you know, the the site-wide user experience platform level stuff, figuring out how best to uh, make our site do what it needs to do for the many different kinds of people that that read it. I mean, the last time I saw you, you were, I think you were working at rock band maybe yeah it could well have been so what interested me because you know i I don't stalk you (laughs) not you know not every day but you know i like to keep tabs on on uh, on handsome men with impressive beards (laughs) you know i I was fascinated you know i I think we lost track for a little while i certainly lost track of what you were doing and then all of a sudden you know as i became much much more interested in editorial because i've been doing a a bunch of work with people like mark porter and various other people much more on that kind of side and you know at that point i can't remember exactly where but i became aware of propublica and lo and behold there's a byline on a story that i'm reading and it's you (laughs) So how did how did you get from rock band to a editorial experience designer? Well, so yeah, the 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 game company I worked for for about a year and a half uh, was Harmonix, and so they're famous for um, creating Guitar Hero and then Rock Band and a number of other music oriented games, and that was a an interesting departure from working on the web. Uh, because it was, you know, very proprietary software, very secretive. And also from an interaction design perspective, it was a really crazy challenge. So for a game like Rock Band, I was designing interfaces that, you know, needed to be manipulated by people who, number one, probably weren't like gamers and weren't used to navigating around game interfaces. And they had to do it with plastic instruments. <laughs> often four people at a time and while they were drunk. 
So that turned into, that, that was a very interesting, but ultimately very frustrating challenge for me. And so uh, when we finished up Rock Band 3, I decided I was going to move on and, and, and try uh, working for myself in New York. So that's what I did. I moved uh, to Brooklyn and just started doing freelance work. And this was, you know, right right when uh, responsive web design had uh, begun, when um, Ethan Marcotte's uh, A List Apart article kind of started the whole thing in 2010. So it was exciting to be getting back into web design at that time. But as my freelance career continued, I found that I had a hard time with the hustle, just the, the fact that you needed to have like six, you know, be working like six jobs at once, essentially, to keep all these projects going and the various components of the projects going. And I was losing my enthusiasm for for the work, and I was I had sort of stopped learning new things right at a time when everything was getting a lot more complex. The different tool chains were really ramping up. Everything was just getting crazy, and and I just felt like I was perpetually behind. So I found out that ProPublica was looking for a designer, and I applied, and I got it. <laughs> and since then, um, it's it's been pretty amazing. I've my enthusiasm for the work basically just sort of took a 180 and I've been learning a ton since I've, since I've been there. So just in a, in a couple of years. So uh, David Slate, who you mentioned uh, is the design director at ProPublica and he just sort of like threw me in the deep end with, you know, all right, you know, we got to, got to get up to speed on Git and going to learn Jekyll and, and we're using SAS and all this other stuff that I had, you know, wanted to learn, but just sort of hadn't found a way in prior to, uh, to being there. So yeah, so I've learned a ton in, in the couple of years since I've been there, as you mentioned, I've, I've had a couple of bylines, which is really exciting, especially among such an incredible bunch of reporters and editors that ProPublica has. So it's, it's been pretty amazing. I feel really thankful to be there. Did you have an interest in editorial before? Absolutely. Yeah. When I went to school for design, when I finished school, editorial was kind of what I was most interested in. And at this time too, like my education was all in print. Web design was sort of just starting to happen. And we had some, our curriculum had some sort of interactive electives, but for the most part, I was self-taught on web design. And so when I first got out of school, I was really interested in working for a magazine. I was really inspired by you know, David Carson and that sort of thing, which was happening then. I, yeah, I just, I think I've always been interested in, in that kind of storytelling. And so I was really interested in, in doing some editorial stuff. Uh, and I did a little bit, but, but especially getting into web design where editorial design at the time really wasn't a thing that just kind of fell by the wayside. So it's really only recently that I've, I've gotten back into it, you know, in a, in a meaningful way working for ProPublica. Well, I've been working on, I've been working in a product company and part of what they do is they publish guides for, you know, financial institutions and, and that kind of stuff. And, you know, things sort of insights into how deals are done and markets and that kind of thing. And I was sitting in a meeting a few weeks ago, we were sort of kicking off a, a design principles workshop and I started off, and there's a bunch of designers from product and marketing in there, and I, I kind of kicked off this session really by saying, these are my principles for design. These are the four things that I think are really important. And, you know, I went through that kind of stuff. And one of the things that I said along the way was, 
And what I'm really interested in doing, guys, is I'm interested in bringing much more of an editorial approach to how we present the content. And one of the people that was in the meeting said, what exactly do you mean by editorial? And I thought, that's a really good question. What, what, is, what does it actually mean to you? What's the difference between, you know, working on something like a, a, what we would consider a classic kind of uh, editorial news story for ProPublica versus, I don't know, how somebody presents their about page on their website? What, what, what does editorial mean to you? Uh, that's a good question. I think, I think in, in both cases – you're talking about storytelling. That's always a component. The design needs to help people understand where this information is coming from, who is conveying the information. But I think when you when you talk about editorial design in a, in a journalistic sense, it becomes a lot more specific and a lot more in depth, I guess. So, you know, the the about page example that you gave for is is um, I don't know. I was reading. I was doing a load of research the other night and I was reading a case study and forgive me if you're listening, whoever it was that wrote this case study, but I I tweeted a link to it and it was a designer's portfolio case study about work that he'd done while at Uber. And I've got to say, this was the most in-depth website portfolio case study I have ever seen. I mean, there was, you know, there was a ton of information in there, but it was beautifully thought out, beautifully illustrated. You know, everything made sense. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, this is this is an editorial approach. You know, it just wasn't kind of a dump of words and pictures on the screen. Sure. I guess the, the the difference comes in when when more people get their hands on it, right? Now, on one hand, you can run into a, a kind of committee thinking situation that we often see in big companies, which you know nobody likes. It's where you know everybody's needs are met, but but uh, on the stakeholder side, but nobody's needs are met on the user side. Whereas, I think. What's fascinating to me about working in journalism is all of the effort and attention and thought that goes into all these little details um, and that's brought in by multiple people. So when you talk about somebody putting together a case study, you know, I love that sort of thing. I love when people do deep dives on their work and their process and trying to explain themselves. And I find that I love it even more, and this is a luxury, especially when people are doing independent work. I love it even more when when they bring in somebody else to offer their perspective and and to edit them and to help distill the essence of what they're trying to say and and help tease out the different parts of it that that maybe they weren't going to be able to express as well on their own. That's the part I think that that's where the difference comes in where there are, you know, multiple people bringing their specific expertise to bear on on how the story is being told. So what does your day-to-day look like are you in the office at ProPublica or are you working remotely I am in the office yeah it's getting crowded we've uh, grown a lot in the last couple of years and yeah day-to-day it, it varies quite a bit because so a lot of last year for example was spent working on our our new site and I hesitate to call it a redesign because it's it's not really basically we moved to a new CMS and build a whole new front end while we were at it and and that sort of thing. But a lot of last year was spent doing that kind of platform level stuff. And now that we've got it in place, we're able to spend more time 
well, for one, slowly tweaking what we've built to, to kind of bring it even further into the modern era. But on the other hand, we want to get back to doing um, some more of these custom-designed, art-directed stories. So, so it's, it's usually somewhere between those two kind of poles of you know doing the the, the system wide platform level user experience design, uh, and then the more bespoke custom design of specific stories. So on the custom design of specific stories, walk me through something like Lost Mothers, which is you know something that you mentioned to me would be a, a you know a good example of a of a piece of work to talk about. What was your first touch what was what was your first exposure to that story okay so lost mothers uh for anyone who's not familiar is basically a, a, a series that we've been doing about maternal mortality in the united states and the uh the rates of women having complications due to pregnancy or, or dying due to pregnancy related complications is just staggeringly high for the developed world far beyond any other country in the developed world. And so our reporter, Nina Martin wanted to dig into that and, and try to figure out what was going on. And so we had done one initial story on this topic about a specific woman and that sort of like, you know, introduced the, the concept and, and showed how this was, you know, something of an epidemic. And then the, the next story, which would be called Lost Mothers, was meant to try to find more specific stories of women affected by this and tell those stories in a series of vignettes, but also show the, the broader scope of it and see how much information we could find about all of the women that had been affected by this. So there was an estimated 700 to 900 women in the US who died in the year 2016 uh, from pregnancy related causes. And so Nina and her team of researchers wanted to find out about who these women actually are, find out what their specific stories were. So I came into the process, it had been underway for, for months already, but I came in and basically, you know, they had this idea for uh, a gallery of like all of these women that we've been able to find out about and, you know, information about them and, and you know, just to give people a sense of the, the scope of this uh, at the macro level, but then at the micro level to get a sense of who these people actually are so that you could really put a human face on this problem. And it was an interesting challenge because, well, there were a few different parts that made it challenging. Number one, the, the gallery idea, which I was sort of, I didn't push back on it as much as, as uh, David did at first. David was really concerned that it was really just going to be something that nobody wanted to look through this, you know, page full of unfamiliar faces. And there had to be something more interesting we could do with, with the information that we had to relate it to the story. So there was that part of it. And the other part was that the information we had was so varied and incomplete. So they were able to identify about 130 of the 700 to 900 women and you know, speak to their families. And, and, um, and for those that we couldn't speak to families, we were able to get information about date of death and, and maybe an obituary and that sort of thing. So, but for some women, we had photos, some women we didn't. We just had a, a, it was sort of a mishmash of information. And also there was the fact that we only had about 130 out of what may have been as many as 900 women. So the idea that we hit upon was, you know, what if we design this thing to emphasize how little information we were actually able to find, even after all this dedicated research time over months. And so we built this sort of grid of, you know, here's, 
here's 800 slots in this thing that represents all of the people. And look how few we were actually able to flesh out. And then from there, you know, you could dig in and find the individual stories of each person. And then for, for uh, maybe about 15 of them, we were able to do some more sort of in-depth vignettes about the women. So it was a really interesting project. Well, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating example, a really good example of telling a story, but without being explicit. You know, there's that kind of implicit story, which is there's seven to 900 women. And, you know, we've only identified currently, looking at the site here, 134. So you get a couple of things from that, um, from that gallery. What did you, you, you gave it a different word a minute ago, but it, the grid, you know, which shows you the scope of, you know, the number of women, but then, you know, you can very, very easily see just how few have been identified. So it's it's kind of telling a story within a story. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this this grid, I mean, the, the vast majority of it is empty. And that's sort of the point, the fact that this data is simply unavailable, which means, you know, it doesn't bode well for this problem being solved anytime soon, which is like shocking. And so that was, you know, that was the idea behind the design was not to shock people necessarily, but to just to, to give you a sense of like, you know, how little is, is really known or understood about what's going on here. David mentioned when I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago that you move very quickly from sketches into code. So, you know, when you're, when you're liaising or working with the editors or the writers in this particular case, how much are you sharing with them on a kind of a sketch ideas level? At what point do you think that that's, you know, right enough to start moving into code? That definitely varies from project to project. And actually lately I've been getting into a bad habit of just diving into code way too early. And I'm trying to step back from that and, and really be more disciplined about doing sketches and, and, you know, iterating rapidly in that fashion before getting into the, the more slow moving code part of things. For this project, we were able to work with the reporter and editors just to sort of almost, almost like a client relationship where, you know, we showed uh, some initial concepts and talked through the uh, benefits and drawbacks and then just, you know, iterated through a few possibilities just in like some very basic wireframey mockups. But it came, you know, it, it once we once we really started moving, the the basic concept, you know, what it wound up being, uh, came together fairly quickly over the course of maybe a, a week or so, if I remember correctly. But yeah, in this case, yeah, we did a bunch of mockups and then moved into a, a, a basic prototype, and then just you know slowly started building up what it was actually going to be from there. Do you do high fidelity mockups for anything? Do you, you know, do you dig out sketch once in a while? I rarely do that sort of thing anymore. And again, I'm I'm trying to find my way back to it. Not necessarily back to doing these sort of like pixel perfect Photoshop mockups like we always used to do, but finding some kind of middle ground be- between wireframe and the the finished piece in code. I'm still sort of figuring out how best to adapt my process in that way. In the kind of work that we do, which often has to move really fast, it's an interesting challenge. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm still I'm still trying to figure that out. I mean, it's interesting that you just said those fateful words, pixel perfect. Yeah, I remember because, that. <laughs> yeah, no, well, <laughs> you see, 
I do remember that, but then I, I, I do know a lot of people, particularly since sketch has become such a phenomenon where there's almost been this kind of resurgence in people doing pixel-perfect mock-ups, you know, particularly even on, you know, what are sort of so-called agile teams. There's a hell of a lot of kind of waterfall effort that goes into, you know, making high-fidelity sketch comps. That's... I get what you're talking about there. It's, it's, I guess I hadn't thought of it in that way because Sketch in particular, I have not yet taken to very well. Part of it is just that, you know, I've been using my Illustrator and Photoshop and whatever for forever. I mean, Sketch has in some ways a fundamentally different way of thinking about things, but I still have a really hard time working with type in Sketch and type is so, you know, core to what I do that um, that's been a real stumbling block for me with sketch. So I'm still trying to find my way with it. Everybody seems to love it. And it's, it seems to be, you know, this de facto standard now, but I have not found my way into sketch just yet. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, you know, you, you talked about pixel perfect and then, you know, in pretty much the same sentence talked about typography. And, you know, one of the things that kind of interests me about, you know, the likes of you and me who worked on the web when pixel perfection was, you know, something to strive for. And, you know, I suppose over the last, I don't know how many years it's been since Ethan's article, you know, eight or so little bit longer since the iPhone came out. You know, one of the things that we've learned is that we should have all listened to John Alsop and his Tao of web design back in the dawn of time <laughs> and kind of reflect, uh, respected this kind of, you know, fluidity. And one of the things that I, I, I find sort of interesting about this whole kind of art direction topic particularly when, you know, it's used in respect to layout, is how does that, how do we balance those two demands? You know, how do we balance the needs for flexibility, but still have control enough to convey the message that we want to convey? Yeah, that is, uh, that's, that's sort of been the, the defining question of responsive design, I guess, right? Or, you know, to your point, if we want to take it all the way back to, uh, to John Alsop's Ballista Part article from, I don't know, 2000, was 2000. it? 2000, it was. It was, no, it was 2000, I know. Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad that we finally come around to that. I think for years we didn't really have the tools to reconcile that flexibility that he talked about with the, a lot of the particularly typographic design principles that that we, we've always wanted to maintain, particularly things like line length and that kind of thing. And so it was exciting when, when responsive web design came around and offered a way to reconcile that flexibility and also that level of, I don't know, just maintaining these, these important design principles. And I, I've really come to like it. I, in, in some ways, I miss being able to just create a, 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 a web design much in the way that I would a print design, just a very sort of static, fixed kind of situation. But what I love about the web is that, you know, people can take it in however they want to. And so I love building things and thinking about, well, you know, how is this going to, what's this going to look like in an RSS feed? Uh, or if somebody brings it into Instapaper or Pocket or something like that, you know, are they able to 
are they going to be able to still have, you know, a good experience taking in this information? I think a lot of people find that sort of thing really frustrating. And I definitely do too, because it's, it's a lot more time consuming and it takes a lot more effort than it used to. But I think it's also sort of fulfilling this, the, the promise that the web always had of, of, you know, coming to people on their terms and letting them take in information the way that they want to and the way that they need to. So, I think I think we're getting better at it. I think we're finding ways to build these design systems that can work across these different platforms and and on different screens and everything else. Let me think of an example. You know, I'm beginning to wonder whether you know really precise control of layout for I don't know. I'm just going to say kind of large screens. It's it's kind of almost like another layer of progressive enhancement i suppose if you want to look at it that way when you get to a screen that's big enough to display this stuff then you can you know then you can have the fancy grid layout <laughs> yeah and it's that is what it's, it's funny how i i think a lot of people still sort of fetishize this big screen layout thing and i'm not exempt from that even though the vast 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 majority of people looking at your stuff is almost certainly looking at it on a tiny little screen that they keep in their pocket. So that's been really interesting too because you know the the disparity in screen real estate definitely offers its own interesting challenges in terms of making something that's unique and and memorable. Because you know the the that's one thing that I I'll be really curious to see where we go in the next few years what we're able to do from a storytelling perspective on a small screen, because it's still very much this just, you know, tall, stacked, thin layout. And I'm sure there are more interesting things we can be doing there that we just haven't figured out yet. I mean, when quite often when people start to talk about art direction for the web, it's very, very often kind of entwined with new layout technologies like CSS Grid. For example, you know, I've seen talks about, you know, real art direction for the web, which is essentially, you know, let's let's make this magazine layout in CSS in ways that we weren't able to do that before. And I think that's 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 great. And, you know, it's a really good kind of technical demonstration of what these things can do. But to me, anyway, the layout is only one facet of the tools that we would use for art direction. You know, even on the tiniest screens, you know, we, we may not have, you know, we may not have layout in, you know, in the, the broad sense in terms of columns, but we've still got mood, we've still got feeling, we've still got great typography. And yeah, there is this kind of extra level. I wouldn't say that it's like a third dimension, but, you know, there is this whole, I don't know, interactive set of metaphors that, yeah, you don't really see people exploring that much. Yeah, and I'm I go back and forth about those things. Like I'm a big believer in simplicity, so I tend to try to distill things down and and just, you know, get rid of of any extra stuff that doesn't need to be there. And for what I do, a lot of that tends to just boiling things down past like fancy interactivity and it's just like, you know, Here's the stuff. Here's the imagery. Here are the the, the colors and the shapes and the, the type and everything else. And I tend to be less interested in doing anything that's I don't know that would be Decorative, very sort of su yeah. superficially forward thinking, if that makes sense. Bells and whistles. 
Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's a good way to put it. But I do worry that that kind of thinking that I miss out on on opportunities. You know, I guess what I'm I want to try to find the balance between you know really going for it with just trying super crazy experimental stuff, but also you know maintaining this this fundamental base layer of like you know here is the thing unadorned take it as it is and that's yeah that's it's it's an interesting an interesting balance to try to find because on a superficial level if you look at you know many of the kind of famous examples you i don't know whether we're recording at this point but you you mentioned david carson a little bit earlier and I'll see your David Carlson and I'll raise you Neville Brody. Mm-hmm. You know, where really, you know, what we, you know, when we look at magazine work, we think about those things in terms of, yes, there was a lot of kind of experimental work. There was a lot of deconstruction. There was, but at the same time, there was a lot of control because you were looking at a print publication. And when we work in this medium, we really are giving up control and you know we don't have the ability to control you know what size somebody sees their t- sees the type or what layout is or you know even if they can see the screen at all so there is this kind of dichotomy which is kind of interesting to me because i'm thinking if that's what people will traditionally think that art direction is in this modern context, we need to redefine it. And what is that redefinition? That's a fair point. Yeah, I mean, we had talked a little bit earlier about this idea of art direction as a component of user experience, or if it's really just a synonym for user experience. And we talked a little bit about how I think this is part of this is bound up in how the nomenclature of our industry has changed over the last decade or so, where you or I just used to call ourselves web designers and I don't think that term even exists anymore because you're either you're you're a product designer or UX designer, UI designer or or whatever it is. And and I think as the web's capabilities have from a traditional design perspective started to catch up to what we've been able to do in print for so long. Yeah, that the the term art direction needs to needs to be more accommodating because as you said it 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 used to be so much about this particular level of control and in some sense sort of self-expression whereas now it's available in this context that is much more fluid and needs to accommodate in fact and it's its strength is that it's able to accommodate all different all different kinds of people uh, who might not be as you said might not be able to even see what we're uh, what we're designing for them i mean i don't want to take a trip down memory lane but you know i will anyway <laughs> But you know, when I was when I was at art school back in the fifties, I think <laughs> I like to think that I'm a mid-century kind of guy. It always amazes me. It always amuses me when I you know when I see some kind of uh, you know restoration program or antique show on the on the TV, and they talk about stuff from the seventies being mid-century, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's me. <laughs> anyway, but you know, I I back at art school, you know, I studied fine art. I didn't study graphic design. And a lot of this stuff that I'm, you know, that I'm interested in now, you know, I didn't know anything about, you know, back at that point. And and I I find it interesting as I've done much more research on this kind of thing that, you know, when we talk about some of those 
I'm not going to call them classical, but some of those kind of often often cited art directors from the from the print world, you know, going back to the you know the 1940s and and slightly beyond, is that one of the things that they had, and this I suppose this is to do with the self expression thing that you mentioned, but one of the things that they all kind of seem to have in common was that they had a really broad interest in other forms of art. You know, they would either be you know, it was uh, Alexei Brodovich, I learned, actually beat Picasso to the first prize of a poster competition, which is, you know, staggering. And, you know, B. Faitler and other people, you know, they had a, a, a massive kind of interest in photography and that really kind of influenced their work. And I think that a lot of those people kind of intuitively knew how to combine imagery with with the written word, you know, even even to a layout extent. And I, I wonder sometimes, and we're sort of slightly drifting off topic, but I do wonder sometimes that, you know, when we get hyper-focused on things like product design, that, you know, we're just putting the blinkers on just a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. That's interesting. So it sounds to me like you're talking about design practitioners used to have more of a, a, a footing in the art world in tandem with the design work. Is that what you're saying? It, yeah. Yeah, it was. And that, and that foot in the art world. And I think my, my modern day equivalent of that might be somebody like Brendan Dawes, for example. But yeah, that it was that foot in the art world that would give them the different perspective on things. Sure. Yeah. And I can see that. I, I think that we do have more of a, a tendency to be, to have sort of tunnel vision about what we do now uh, and things can get a bit mannered and you know we see that with sort of how the the web was taken over by um bootstrap layouts and that sort of thing over the last several years i hesitate to i'm not sure that it's hard for me to really have a sense of how the industry at large brings other influences into its work now with regard to, you know, being influenced by the art world and finding interesting ideas there that, that can that can happen in their design work. I suppose the big question, and I've just this has just come to mind, but I suppose what I'm trying to get to is do art directors need to have that broader perspective and that broader interest to be able to you know, really understand how to, you know, do things like you've done with the, with the grid on the lost mothers so that, you know, it's, it's, it's not just a, a kind of a, you know, a web convention, but it's something that, you know, may be informed by, I don't know, Damien Hurst painting. I mean, I think what you're talking about is visual thinking, right? It's being able to make associations between things that, that aren't obvious and that, you know, most people would not make. So not to suggest that this is any particularly striking example, but the Lost Mothers Gallery visually was partly inspired by the floor of the elevator in the in ProPublica's building, which has this dot grid, you know, and I see it every single day. And one day I was like, oh, like that could be an interface, you know. I think whether or not somebody is Wherever somebody is pulling these ideas from, it's this idea of of you know looking outside of of the specific discipline that you're working in and finding ideas from other places to that that can that can be valuable in what you're doing. And so you know whether that's the art world, whether it's just seeing things 
in the city, on your commute that you see every day, and you know, nature, all these sorts of things. I'm not, I'm not so concerned that people have a, a specific kind of cultural literacy that they can bring to their work as much as they have a certain visual thinking acumen and they're able to just make interesting connections that'll, that'll push their work forward into, you know, new and valuable and interesting places. Well, here's the million dollar question then. Everybody, the world and his mother is talking about design systems right now. And those things mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You know, you touched on bootstrap as, you know, I suppose we still call it a framework. But what that turned out to be ultimately was, oh, well, that's layout sorted then. Or, Mm. ah, there's my typographic scale. Or... Ah, yeah, so I'll just change the the background color on a button and, you know, voila. And there's been this massive interest in basically turning web design into patterns, repeatable patterns. And I, I wonder sometimes, you know, what the relationship is between not repeating yourself. It was Josh Clark that talked about design systems must be boring because, you know, nobody wants to, you know, design a search interface 15 times. But, you know, I do wonder about this, the connection between art direction and pattern libraries or design systems and how those two things kind of work together. I mean, I think the way that I I have approached these sorts of things for a long time really has been what is the what is the problem that we're trying to solve? You know, start there, obviously. What is the most conventional way of solving that problem? And once we, you know, have applied that convention, how is that convention insufficient? And how can we build on it? And how can we move away from it? And what can we do to make this this design, this work, respond more directly to the, the very specific problem to be solved as opposed to the category of problem to be solved. So if if I'm laying out an article, you know, the first thing you do, flow text into sort of a standard layout, you know, maybe throw some images in there. Okay, great. So I'm reading through this story. I'm hearing what it has to say. How might I hear it better? You know, what if... What if this happened? What if this happened? And just, you know, finding ways to take the foundation of that convention and add or subtract things that will allow it to respond more directly to the, the specific problem to be solved. So I think when you talk about frameworks and frameworks in particular, but but design systems and pattern libraries that are meant to be generic, that's just sort of outsourcing the work and and outsourcing it to to you know somebody who doesn't know the specifics of the precise problem that you're trying to solve. And that's where people get into trouble. So for me, it's not so much about this tragedy that like everything looks the same uh, and is approached the same way. It's that people aren't bothering to, you know, figure out what makes the thing that they're working on unique and special and and how to attend to that. So I think that's the thing that, that people really need to be thinking about. Well, I, been giving this a lot of thought recently and one of the things that's often troubled me is when people take something like bootstrap and you know tweak a few colors and and that's it that's design solved and i think we've seen a similar thing in the product world with material design over the last you know couple of years or so 
But when I look at something like material design, you know, it's it's very well designed. You know, the the interactions are, you know, very thoughtfully done and there's lots of stuff which has been kind of taken care of. But the personality that's kind of embodied in those design choices is Google's design personality or design choices. And I think that it's actually okay to develop what I've been calling in the book foundation styles, not to do with, you know, the foundation framework, but kind of foundation styles around color and typography and interaction patterns and that kind of stuff, as long as what they're reflecting is the goals of the you know particular publication or product company or the you know the distinctive brand or personality or whatever so i think it's okay to have a boring design system as long as it's your boring design system and not somebody yeah. else's yeah i would i would agree with that that's uh, yeah it's it's about specificity right it's is this is this speaking to your audience specifically or is it speaking to, you know, whoever might happen to be listening? Yeah, no, it is an interesting one because, again, I think it was Josh in this article was talking about design systems should kind of clear the way for people to, uh, you know, to be inventive. I'm just going to actually look up his quote. Let me search through my manuscript. <laughs> what a fabulous podcast this is. Here we go. Andy does a search. He said, crafting a design system is about clearing the way for others to invent and imagine. I thought, that's a lovely way of putting it. Mm-hmm. I agree. I like the idea of making tools that are not prescriptive. So, for example, we built a tool at ProPublica called Column Setter, and this was coming together around the same time that CSS Grid suddenly you know, was adopted in all the major browsers over the course of like a week. And so it might not have happened otherwise, but basically it's a SaaS tool that allows you to create custom grid-based layouts uh, that are, you know, sort of traditional float-based layouts or maybe Flexbox-based layouts. And one thing that was really important to me, well, two things were really important to me in making this was number one, didn't want it to touch your HTML in the way that a lot of frameworks do. You know, it's not not a, a system where, you know, you give a div, a class of like six call or whatever. So it wouldn't touch your HTML and also it wouldn't be prescriptive. So it wasn't like, here's the grid, you know, like 960 grid or something, go ahead and shoehorn your stuff into it. It's, and it's, it was more like, no, you can def- define the parameters of this grid within some certain constraints and you can make it be, you know, precisely what you need it to be. And then this, this will just, you know, make it easier for you to write the code to build the layout. And that's, I think, in line with, you know, Josh's idea that like, we're making something that will help you make the thing that you need to make, not make the thing that you need to make within our existing parameters, that sort of thing. So yeah, I think that's, that's an important distinction and a great way to look at it. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, I think, one of the biggest kind of challenges I think facing us at the moment is this idea that you know we need to standardize around certain patterns and where does this kind of I don't know flexibility kind of come in and I I do find this kind of thing 
fascinating because I, I feel having spoken to um, a lot of product designers over the last, you know, bunch of weeks that they almost feel like art direction kind of comes at the end. You know, you've designed the user experience, you've designed all the flows and yet, you know, art direction is something which is, you know, it's the bells and whistles, I suppose. And as we kind of talk much more about products rather than, you know, remember when we used to call them web apps? Indeed. Before we, that was about the time I think that we, uh, we handcrafted digital experiences. A lot of people did that for a while. <laughs> I just, kept, yeah, I just built websites. Just, you know, express it as breathlessly as you, as you can. <laughs> handcrafted. I, uh, I handcraft bespoke artisanal experiences. That's right. Yes. I, uh, I actually, I don't write my HTML in a text editor. I actually use a calligraphy pen. <laughs> and I have I like the, the idea of, of writing HTML on paper and then like OCRing it. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I have the most beautiful parentheses that you can possibly imagine. <laughs> I'm imagining it now. Yes, well, I don't think you should. I, th I think this is a really kind of interesting time. You know, you mentioned earlier on about kind of, you know, losing enthusiasm or feeling kind of left behind for a certain time. And, you know, you coming to ProPublica, you know, your, your enthusiasm for design was kind of reignited. And I think that I know that you don't subscribe to this whole kind of, you know, all websites are boring scenario. But I do think that we've been through a pretty dry patch over the last three or four years. And a lot of that, I think, has got to do with tooling. I think a lot of that's got to do with our approach to kind of responsive design. You know, we had a lot of things to figure out and maybe we just left the art direction side to, you know, to, to one side for a little while. And now I think it's a really interesting time to be doing this kind of stuff. Not, you know, not just in editorial, but, you know, in product or marketing or all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, the, the main challenge to be overcome from my perspective is finding a way to, to strengthen the open web again and get away from, you know, this whole, I, I mean, a lot of people don't feel like they need to have a website anymore because they can have a Facebook page or whatever. And I think that's been, that's been damaging in its own way. I don't know if the way that these, you know, the way that new tools are evolving and, and um, public attitudes are shifting and, and everything else, how that will affect what design on the web is going to become over the next few years. But, but I am optimistic. I'm seeing people get excited about things like CSS grid in ways that they were, that they haven't been excited about stuff in a long time. So yeah, I, I think there's a lot of potential. I think there's a lot of smart, talented people out there. I, I think, uh, I think there's going to be some good things to come. I cannot think of a better way of ending the show than with that little <laughs> quote. That was, it's, it's so optimistic. Yes, it was. What a happy note. <laughs> to end on. Before we do end, though, I mean, I've got to ask you, what happened to Windhammer? Well. For the three people that are listening, I think yeah, maybe we the, ought to start off by explaining who Windhammer is or was. The, the three uninitiated listeners. So Windhammer is my competitive air guitar alter ego. And it's funny you should bring him up because this year is Windhammer's 10th anniversary. And I can't say for sure, but I heard a rumor that after 
a couple of years of uh, of, of retirement. I, I heard a rumor that Windhammer might be returning to the the competition stage this summer. We'll just have to wait and see. I can he still do the moves? I mean, he, he must be he <laughs> he must be uh, knocking on a bit now. The fella Windhammer is ageless, Andy. <laughs> And that really is a great place to end it.